So it's a pretty exciting day. We've made it to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you believe it? Yeah. It's been like, I don't know, a year and a half or something like that. And today is the, the final day. And I'm ready to go back through it. So I don't know about you, but uh, it's been a great thing uh, to go through together as a community. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 7 or your phone. It'll also be up on the screen if you would like to follow along up there. And over the last two gatherings, we have been exploring what is the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you recall from our previous gatherings, he ends his sermon differently from how we may expect him to end a sermon. He doesn't tell a touching story that tugs at our emotions. He doesn't offer some motivational call to action. He doesn't give a practical three-step application for his teachings. Instead, he gives us three sobering warnings. It's a pretty heavy way to to end this sermon that Jesus gives. Now, I'm I'm not going to summarize the first two. You can go back. uh, we got a podcast. You can listen to those if you'd like. But we're going to dive into this third and final warning uh, just over the next few minutes. And then we're actually going to read through the Sermon on the Mount together, which would be really, really cool, and just see it in its entirety. So today, the third and final warning, the question that Jesus puts before us with this warning is, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? So let's read this passage, Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its collapse was great. The end. (laughs) That's how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so Jesus' final warning here comes in the form of a parable. Jesus told a lot of parables. This is a parable just like all those other ones. And in this parable, there are two men who both build themselves a house. Now, as far as we can tell, the houses appear to be very similar, but when the storms come, the differences under the surface are revealed. Jesus says that when the rain fell and the flood came, the house that was built on what he calls the rock remained standing, but the house that was built on what he calls the sand was completely destroyed. So let's briefly unpack this parable. Okay, so, so we know from the context of Jesus' teachings that the house represents the builders' lives. Okay, Jesus' sermon, among other things, casts a vision for a way of living that is radically different from the status quo. The two passages leading up to this talked about deciding between two ways of life and then following after people who are going to guide you in the way that you want to go. So it's all about how we live our life. So this So our house, in the context of the parable, is the life that we have built. Okay, this is an image that we still use today. If you've ever heard the phrase, uh, you got to get your house in order. 
right? That refers to dealing with the problems and the affairs and the habits that are disrupting or cluttering your life. So people say, get your house in order. It means clean up your life, like get it together, okay? That's an idiom that we use today. So now we see that Jesus is, is not concerned with the appearance of the home, okay? That's clear from the parable. His concern is not the appearance of the home, but the foundation of the home, Okay, his warning is not simply about how we live our lives, but on a deeper level, what are our lives built on? He is getting to what is the most fundamental element to our existence. What motivates everything we do and think? What informs how we see and understand the world and our place in it? What is our foundation? Now, if the house represents our lives that we build, then the storms and the flood represents the hardships or the trials that test the strength of our life. Okay, relational strife, a health crisis, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, financial hardship, unforeseen obstacles that stand between you and the direction that you want to go. An emotional, mental, or physical breakdown. A crisis of faith. When the storms of life come, which they do for everyone, both houses face the storm. We may be battered and bruised, but does our foundation keep us standing? At the end of the day, does the house remain standing? Or do we fall apart? Do we crumble under the heavy weight of life? Do we spiral into further chaos and destruction? This past summer, uh, we traveled as a family to West Michigan. And we were visiting my brother and his family. They live in Holland. And while we were there, we took their pontoon boat and went up and down the shore of of Holland, of Lake Michigan. And all along the the lake, there are these beautiful multi-million dollar lake homes. I mean, really beautiful homes. But it was clear as we went up and down the shore that they were on the brink of disaster. Okay, let me show you a picture of what I mean here. Okay, this is the one of the homes that we we went by. So all along the shore of Lake Michigan, there are these massive sand dunes. Okay, beautiful, beautiful sand dunes. And over the past five years, high water levels and severe winter weather has caused rapid erosion of the sand dunes along the shore. Many of these homes are at risk of collapsing into the lake. Some already have. And it has nothing to do with the value of the home. Okay, I think all these homes are far more expensive than any home any of us live in. Okay, nothing has to do with the value of the home. Nothing has to do with, with the appearance or its materials. It is simply due to the foundation that these homes were built on. The sand beneath the home is being washed away, and eventually the homes will be too. You can see that the dock, like the stairs going down to the lake have already crumbled. Some of the trees from their yard have already fallen in. So maybe this is how your life looks like right now. Okay, things look good on the surface, but you are on the brink of collapse. With every trial... Every hardship, every disappointment, every loss, 
you can feel the foundation eroding beneath you. Now, many of these homeowners along the Lake Michigan shore have begun to build steel seawalls at the base of the sand dunes. And this is an effort to slow down the erosion. And they're, they're spending an extraordinary amounts of money building these walls. They have to get like uh, all these machines down there. And it's a big ordeal to build these walls down there. But it's only a temporary fix. It will only slow down the erosion. Eventually, their homes will be destroyed. They might be able to prolong it for a number of years, but the, the seawalls will only slow down the erosion. Jesus' parable makes it clear that there is nothing that we can add to our lives that will prepare us for the storm. There is no quick fix that will keep us standing through the trials and the hardships of life. If our lives are built on something other than the rock, any addition or reinforcements we will make will be at best a temporary fix. Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, the first few lines of this passage in this way. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. Jesus is concerned with our foundation. He is not concerned with good appearances. Okay, doing and saying all the right things like the Pharisees isn't enough. He is concerned with our foundation. What is the fundamental thing that informs your life? What is your life built on? According to Jesus, your life is either built on him and his words, or it is built on something else. So how do we build our house on the rock? How do we build our life on a strong foundation? Well, Jesus says in this passage, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them builds their house on the rock. Notice the difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder. Okay, the foolish builder hears Jesus' words and does not act on them. If we could put that verse back up there, the, the first verse. The foolish builder hears the words and does not act on them. In other words, the foolish builder's issue is not that they didn't hear Jesus' words. It's not that they missed out on his teaching. It's that they heard and did nothing. Okay, I love how the the NIV translates these lines. Whoever hears my words and puts them into practice. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying the way to a good foundation is not perfect obedience. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Remember, we said this all the way back, way back when we were talking about the Beatitudes, okay, over a year ago. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of things to do. Okay, it's not a list of, it's not like a law to replace the law given to Moses. Jesus is casting a vision for a whole new way of living within his kingdom here on earth. It is a vision for life in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is not expecting perfection. He is, however, expecting action. He is expecting a response from those who hear his words. He is inviting us to orient our lives around him and his life and his teaching. He knows, this is interesting, I thought, he knows that sermons don't change lives. Even the greatest sermon ever given by Jesus himself. Sermons don't change lives. 
the transformation of our hearts and minds happens when we respond to Jesus' teachings, when we join him in the work of building his kingdom here on earth. This is an invitation. So why does Jesus end his Sermon on the Mount in this way? He seems to be aware that many of us will fail to take his words seriously. We'll either ignore them altogether, or as Eugene Peterson put it, we will treat them as incidental additions or homeowner improvements to my life. I think many of us are, are at risk of the latter rather than the former. Jesus warns us that if we hear his teachings, we must be moved to action. We must respond with our whole lives. The most dangerous thing that we can do is hear his words and not act. Keeping Jesus' teachings as head knowledge without allowing it to inform every part of our lives, our hearts, and our minds. This quote um, by Richard Rohr has to be probably the, one of the most challenging things I've read recently. If you could put that up. It says, The Sermon on the Mount has been deemed poetic nonsense by 95% of the Christian establishment for two years, or 2,000 years, I'm sorry, since Jesus has been around. Especially the last two years. But we can admire Jesus at a safe distance, like a pious icon, but cleverly ignore both his message and his actual journey. There is no alternative, no other way to understand than to go on the journey ourselves. Cobra, I'm going to have you come on up here. So you've heard the Sermon on the Mount, and if you haven't, you're going to hear it pretty soon here. Now, what are you going to do with it? Now that we have walked through Jesus' teachings for the past year and a half, I think we need to honestly ask ourselves Have I allowed these words of Jesus to fundamentally reorient my life? Or are they just add-ons to whatever it is that I'm building? Do I understand my place and role within Jesus' kingdom? Or am I content with Jesus having his little corner within mine? When the disappointments and frustrations and hardships and trials of life come my way, do I press in to Jesus and his vision for my life? Or do I retreat and grow distant? Do I try to reinforce my weak foundation as it crumbles beneath my feet? There's lots of people who worship Jesus, but have built their lives on sand whether it be success or comfort or safety or wealth or, or status or their image, their relationships, their vision for their life. And until the storm comes, having Jesus as an add-on feels great. But someday the storm will come and our foundation will be revealed. So what are you building your life on? Yeah, I'm gonna invite Becca up here don't mind. We're going to enter into an extended time of worship, and throughout worship, we're going to hear the entire Sermon on the Mount, okay, read by people within our community. So I invite you to just meditate on these words. It is a really special time where we just get to hear this, this whole sermon in its entirety. And I want you to simply ask yourself, as they're being read, what would it look like for me to build my life on these words? 
if Jesus puts something on your heart, I encourage you, you can jot something down those note cards, save it, remember it. What is my life built on? Throughout worship, the communion table is going to be open, so you're welcome to come to that anytime. We're not going to say any more about that. But, all right, Becca? Matthew 5, you're blessed. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law, and you will only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously, show the way for others, and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you might find yourself hauled into court. 
thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and, about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, Whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you, and never doing it, or saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others, the way God lives toward you.
careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it Announce it with the trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they, they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, and, and we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their face to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up on yourselves treasures on earths, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not being also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. Or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or reap and store away in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you worrying by add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon and his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, which he will not much more clothe you, you, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pages and pages run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what, that you need them. But seek first his kingdom of his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own.
Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings... The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes.